Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 18th, 2019. On this week's show, Robert Lipsight will be here to talk about who won and who lost the settlement between the NFL and Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed. Sean Foreman of Sports Reference will also come on the show to explain how we built an indispensable family of websites that generates more than a billion page views a year. And two-time National Magazine Award winner Tom Juneau will join us to discuss how he bonded with his father over sports gambling. I said us. Stefan Fats is actually off this week. I use the royal us. That means that I do not have anyone here to talk with me except for our fine guests. But I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the NBA All-Star Game, the night when basketball's biggest stars come out to shine. Alas, Stefan is not here to chat with me about the fact uh, that there was a characteristically crappy dunk contest. But I was won over by the idea put forward by Jacob Feldman of Sports Illustrated for Dunk Contest 2020, in which five contestants would have all of All-Star Weekend to create the best two-minute dunk compilation video anywhere in the host city. He says that videos would be shown at halftime of the game. Most Instagram likes by the final whistle wins. I'm not sure how I feel about the Instagram likes component of this, but I like the two-minute dunk compilation video made uh, anywhere in the host city. The actual best idea to fix the dunk contest is just to hold it every four years, maybe every 10 years, maybe just never, uh, 20, 25 years, or just let Zion Williamson do it once and then end it forever. All of these ideas are free to you, Adam Silver. On Friday, the NFL and representatives for Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed announced that the parties had reached a settlement, bringing the separate grievance cases brought by Kaepernick and Reed to a close. Both players argued that the league and or its teams had colluded to keep them out of the NFL because of the role they played in leading social justice protests, most notably the fact that they both kneeled during the national anthem. Reed, who eventually signed with the Carolina Panthers, did not drop his grievance after getting that deal, while Kaepernick has now been out of the league for two full years. The Kaepernick and Reed settlements include a confidentiality agreement, so we don't know how much money changed hands here, although Bleacher Report's Mike Freeman wrote on Twitter that NFL team officials had speculated to him that Kaepernick alone got 60 to $80 million. Joining me now to discuss is the journalist and author Robert Lipsight. Good to have you back on the podcast, Bob. Thank you. Great to be here. It's perhaps unsurprising that those inclined to support Kaepernick see this as a big win for him, that he got the league to settle, which is something that, for instance, the golden boy Tom Brady did not achieve when he was suspended four games for Deflategate. How are you thinking about the outcome here? Well, I'm not so sure that this is a big win for Colin Kaepernick or us or progress or whatever. I think it was a very smart uh, and calculated move by the NFL, which, of course, we would understand, you know, it, it's like, is um, Attorney General Barr going to release the Mueller report? It would be so interesting if this case went to court and we really kind of opened up the hearts uh, of these evil billionaires who own the league. What I, I think that the league has done is, to a great extent, remove this specter, specter of race, 
specter of social justice, you know, specter of the fans becoming restive uh, in the, the fascism of the league. They've removed this for a mere 60 to $80 million. If that's true, it sounds good. Colin gets paid back for what he's lost. But what we're going to see is the $100, million, $100 billion speculated about sports gambling. Now, if, if you think about the NFL as a, a kind of dating league, it's kind of getting to, a, uh, I think, a difficult point for America to morally keep watching these guys get their heads battered. We've been through this before when they cut off that big lawsuit some years ago with a a settlement that really kind of limited their responsibilities to all the guys with brain damage. So here they've kind of limited their responsibility was race and social justice. And why? Why would you do that? Well, if they can just hang on for a little bit longer, I think the world is going to change. And that, that's going to be sports gambling. And I think that the money, the licensing money that individual teams will make from this brand new world of sports gambling is incredible and will revive the game. When I started out in, in, in sports, the big sports were boxing, horse racing, and baseball, if you can believe that. And horse racing, which was kind of a joke, I always thought, really only existed because it was the only way you could legally bet. You know, the, the myth of horse racing. What, what nonsense. I mean, the Triple Crown, Pimlico, <laughs> Churchill Downs, what dumps they were. You know, colonels and juleps and the you know, the sport of kings, what crap. It, but it existed because you could gamble. Look what happened to horse racing, the sport of kings. Just as soon as there were state lotteries, there were other ways in which you could legally gamble. It went away. Boxing went away. Baseball faded. I, I think it's the cycle of empires. And I think that uh, the NFL has wisely realized Hold on to the, the younger element. Try to negate as long as you can. You know, all these families out in America who are becoming soccer moms because they realize that it's starting in peewee when your head gets messed up. And I think that if I was Goodell and his billionaires, I'd pay anybody anything just to keep the lid on for a few more years. Let's at least get another big payday. So uh, Kaepernick, um, did he win? I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm glad he made some serious dough. Uh, I think that's great. I have to tell you, I'm not all that interested in watching him play again. I don't see the great victory in that unless he's really great. I see Kaepernick, if he comes back to try to play, as kind of the uh, black left Kim Tebow, you know, kind of the specter hanging on, you know, maybe you will once again delight us. I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) There's just been a lot of conversation over the last couple of years about on one side you have Kaepernick and Reed, and on the other side you have Malcolm Jenkins on kind of opposite poles as far as working with the league or working against the league, willingness to take the league's money as Jenkins was getting tens of millions of dollars towards social justice causes. And then on the other side, this vision of Kaepernick being the more kind of pure anti-NFL exiled because of his views sort of figure. And I wonder if this complicates that view. I mean, we don't know how much money he got. All we know is that the terms are confidential and maybe we'll find out at, at some point, but do you feel like there's any kind of shift in his image because he, he took this settlement rather than fighting it out till the bitter end? Well, I have two thoughts. First of all, I, I would be kind of uh, personally cautious uh, about you know, setting the two of them against each other. I mean, I, I think that they're both in, in their own 
sincere and honest ways, trying to make valid statements, things that we really need to hear. Well, I'm only about. saying what Eric Reed himself said. He pit them against yeah. each other. Yeah, but I think that as far as taking money, I, I think that once Kaepernick entered into the agreement with Nike, yeah, I think some of the bloom was off what you called his purity. I mean, Nike was really very smart to kind of plug in to the younger, more rebellious generations. I mean, who, who buys sneakers now? Not, you know, not old guys like me. So I think that he took that kind of money. Just do it. Hey, you know, just do what? I don't think Kaepernick can be so easily, or Jenkins can be so easily pigeonholed. Yeah. There's always people who say, well, the only valid way to make changes from the inside which is, you know, I guess, Jenkins' posture, and Kaepernick is on the outside. I, I think those are two you know, totally valid positions. I don't know that Kaepernick settling, in a sense, winning a lawsuit or winning money damages that aspect of his image. He did it already with Nike. Any conclusion that says that Kaepernick is an unambiguous winner here, and there have there have been a lot. You do have to grapple with the conclusion that you made in your first answer, which is that the NFL won in not having to go through discovery here and not having to reveal depositions from owners in which they talked about how they may or may not have been influenced by Donald Trump. And in just getting this out of the news. And so if Kaepernick won, it's not the same thing as saying that the NFL lost, because I don't think the NFL lost here. I don't think so at all. Not at all. I think that the uh, NFL um, made a wise decision. It cut off the story at its knees, and it can now move on for whatever price is something that we know it can afford. I mean, God, can you imagine if the NFL is as leaky as the White House, uh, what we would find out? What you know, We know some of the things that these, these crazy billionaires have said. Can you imagine if we really found out their attitudes, their racial attitudes, their attitudes towards their fans, towards their players? And, you know, race is something that we kind of shrink away from. But the NFL is a pretty black league. And I think that at some point, the idea of of what sports gambling will do will kind of paper over the race of these ballplayers, and they will just be, as horses were, they will just be objects to bet on. And um, I, I think that will kind of cover all sins for a long time. You mentioned Kaepernick maybe or maybe not being back in the league. His lawyer has made it clear in, in an interview over the weekend that he does still want to play. He's in his early 30s. The lawyer mentioned the Patriots as a possible destination, also possibly the Carolina Panthers, where his friend and former teammate Eric Reed plays. Uh, I think you're on to something when you mentioned the Tim Tebow thing. Not, I mean, Kaepernick was much better, much, 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 much better NFL quarterback than Tebow was, but just how if he did come back and play and if he got back on the field, it would be seen as a referendum on whether he was right, whether he threw for a bunch of touchdowns or whether he threw interceptions. And there are cheering sections on both sides of of folks who who would read so much into his off-the-field cause based on what he did on the field. I think you're absolutely right about that, and whether that's a good thing or not, who knows? I mean, in terms of Tebow, who I've always rooted for, I think he's kind of a wonderful character. In Tebow's case, if he can ever really learn to hit properly, is that going to be a referendum on his brilliance at doing uh, circumcisions as a missionary in the Philippines? (laughs) But the referendum about the moral stance of Kaepernick is a much more nuanced and interesting thing. It's very possible that the Patri- that that means the the irony of that would be marvelous. The Patriots sign him, Brady goes down, Kaepernick steps in, 
and leaves them, you know. To and he makes them. America great again. That's right. Uh, and, and it could be, you know, maybe spun that way. I don't know. I mean, um, actually, what he could do is he could make the Patriots great again. He would, you know, remove, you know, that kind of awful right-wing stink of the owner, the coach, and the quarterback all wearing the red cap. Whenever I talk to you, I want to talk about Muhammad Ali, naturally. And I wonder um, if you've thought about this settlement um, in terms of how Ali um, and his ban from from boxing played out um, and how important it was that the fight over his return to the ring played out publicly as opposed to maybe being done in private subject to a confidential settlement? Well, he never got any kind of big league corporate money until, you know, the very end, you know, a few years ago, where uh, some company bought his image for 30 or $40 million, whatever the price was. I think that the difference really is, it's kind of major in the sense that Ali was really narrow and ignorant and made a um, decision that he really didn't fully understand for a few years until he grew and changed and slowly began to understand what he had done, what the social issues were, what he was standing up for, and what he, you know, what he gave up for principle. I think Kaepernick was a far more fully formed intellectual person. And he did understand it from very early, from the very beginning. You know, he was very precise that what he was protesting against was, you know, had nothing to do specifically with football, the flag, but had to do with white violence against blacks. I mean, it was very clear. So now the question is, where is he now in his social thinking? I assume he's in the same place. He made his statement. If it had been up to him, we understand, he would have made his statement and kept on playing. But it didn't work out that way. So in a sense, I don't see that Kaepernick is is in any way selling out or giving up. I mean, he wanted to play. He wanted to get paid. He also wanted the American prerogative of speaking his mind. And these are seemingly, or or we're seeing it happen, coming to pass, which is kind of different from Ali, who, of course, on the other hand, was on on a, at that time, certainly, a much larger stage. But I I think that your idea of uh, comparing them, or at least looking at both of them through the same filter is absolutely right on. And in the case of um, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who raised their fists at the 68 Olympics, all those guys really paid serious prices for standing up for their principles uh, and and should be honored for that. Where that brings a Malcolm Jenkins in, I don't know. Uh, I guess without a Kaepernick, he would have been the social justice hero. Yeah. So from March 1967 to... October 1970, Ali didn't fight. During that period, did you and did others think that he would never fight again, that that was a possibility? Yeah, I thought it was a possibility, but I kind of covered it. So we saw that you know he would come very close. The point was there was no sort of, other, other than taking his passport so that he couldn't leave the country to fight, it wasn't as if there was a federal mandate boxing totally fragmented, run by small boxing commissions in towns, sometimes in states, so that any one of them could have licensed Ali to fight. The only problem was that suddenly big politics would come down and crush you, until finally, in an emerging Atlanta with uh, a black majority and a uh, powerful black uh, legislator in concert with a white mayor brought it all about. So, I mean, it was 
it was in a sense a very you know specific and narrow victory in that way. But of course, by that time, Ali had changed enormously. Those three years he spent most of the, uh, the time making his money, going to college campuses and giving lectures, which got better and better and more sophisticated and more worldly as he was forced to answer the questions of college students who knew so much more about civil rights and uh, the Vietnam War protests than he did. And, and you know, he was ignorant and narrow, but he was very smart. And so he grew, he listened, and he grew, and he kind of got to a worldview that filled the promise of his refusal to be drafted three years ago. Now he suddenly knew why he was refused to be drafted, and it wasn't only because members of the Nation of Islam you know, were generally conscientious objectors. It'll really be interesting to hear how Kaepernick's voice changes because he has a book coming out, I believe, later this year. It'll be fascinating to see how that changes things. And then he'll probably you know, start talking. I mean, yeah. that's, what, that's when people finally talk. Yeah, and also, you know, he's spent a lot of money on social justice and, and charitable work, and presumably he will have more to splash around now. And so right. We're, we're right in the middle here. And so we're, we're kind of uh, at an inflection point for him. I guess my last question is, there's been a lot, um, I've, I've read a lot of people who say it would actually burnish his reputation more if he never played again. I'm just not sure I, I buy that. Do you feel like if Ali had never fought again and his sacrifice was that much more apparent, would that have made him more of a legendary figure? Yeah, that's a really good question. But I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with um, his performance. If Kaepernick comes back and it's the Kaepernick who led the 49ers to the Super Bowl, wow, that's great. He kept in shape. He didn't get banged up. It would also show that the the NFL had been wrong about him the whole time, which is appealing. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I think there was a general feeling that the NFL was wrong about not signing him at all. I mean, there were awful lot of um, flabby backup quarterbacks sure. uh, that he would have been better than. But I, I think in in terms of Ali, I mean, Ali comes back, he wins the title two more times, he has some of his greatest fights, he not only shows that he can fight again, but uh, he also shows that he can take it. I mean, he took an enormous amount of punishment in those fights after his comeback. You know, he wasn't dancing anymore. He stood toe-to-toe and slugged with guys like Joe Frazier. Man, that was, you know, that was painful to watch. And George, I mean, so in that sense, he absolutely satisfied on every way, offering, if nothing else, you know, these blood sacrifices as well as standing up for principles. I, I think it might be a lot harder for a team athlete. You know, which team is he with? Is he going to have an offensive line that can protect him? Right. Uh, so who knows how he'll do it? It will entirely be up to him. And all I can hope, Josh, is that if he comes back and if he plays again, you know, there will be sports gambling in place to bet on him big. <laughs> Bob, uh, always great to talk to you. Robert Lipsite, journalist and author. There's a new edition of your book, uh, Sports World Out, right? Right. So folks could uh, check that out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about sports reference with Sean Foreman, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will have Robert Lipsight back, and I'm going to talk to him 
about the other side of his career, the other half of his career, sports journalist by day, young adult novelist by night, or maybe he does the novels in the day and the journalism at night, or maybe it's not really a day versus night thing. Either way, we'll talk about his young adult novels and how he got into that. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. This morning, as I was preparing for our next segment, I went to baseball-reference.com and typed random in the search box. The page that came up was a box score for a game between the Detroit Tigers and Cleveland Indians on September 12th, 1916. You all remember it. Ty Cobb went four for five that day. Four runs scored and four RBIs and the Tigers 10-2 win. While Ray Chapman, who'd be killed when he got hit in the head with a pitch four years later, went 0 for 2. The Indians also had a guy named Brago Roth who was killed in 1936 when a car he was riding in was struck by a newspaper truck. If I got into how everyone who played in that game got killed, I'd have a baseball-themed six feet under going on. But we also wouldn't have time for our guest, Sean Foreman, the founder and owner of Baseball Reference and the Sports Reference family of websites. He's also the subject of a recent New York Times feature written by James Wagner. Welcome to the show, Sean. Uh, Good to be here. Thank you for having me. What I was trying to get at in that intro was that Baseball Reference is a place where you can find yourself, or maybe I should just own it and say I can find myself, going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And I should also note that Rabbit Marinville was 12th in MVP voting (laughs) with the 1933 Boston Braves. He was 41 years old. That's very impressive. Uh, When you launched the first version of the site in April 2000, what was the scope of it and what was your goal at the time, uh, my goal was basically just to uh, to put the baseball encyclopedia online because uh, I thought that would be kind of a fun uh, fun thing to do. I was into web design at that time. I was gra- also avoiding my dissertation. I was a graduate student at that time, so really it was it was mostly scratching my own itch. Um, I was interested in web design, interested in baseball stats. I had run a uh, prospect report online uh, for a little while called the Iowa Farm Report. And so it was just something that I was uh, I was interested in doing and, and thought it would kind of be a hobby as I was on my way to uh, becoming a college professor. So the origins of the site, the baseball reference site, was uh, the CD-ROM that came with Total Baseball, the, base, the physical baseball encyclopedia? Uh, yeah, so uh, Sean Lahman, whose name has caused much confusion uh, with my own, Sean Lahman basically took that CD-ROM and created a site called the Baseball Archive or Baseball1.com. I can't. It had several different names, but it was at BaseballNumberOne.com for uh, for a long time. And basically, he just took that CD-ROM, was able to extract the uh, stats from that CD-ROM, and created a, the first basic online database. It, it wasn't in a sense, a website, but it was more just you could download the files uh, and load them into MySQL or any other SQL database uh, at that time. So we now think, and it's a testament to how amazing and useful these sites are, that I think of them at least as kind of a public utility. But it is very uh, you know useful to remind people that this thing didn't exist until it existed and someone had to make it. It's sort of similar to the Internet Movie Database in that way, Wikipedia. Are those the sites that you see kind of as your peers? Uh, I definitely see the IMDB as being the uh, kind of, of where the IMDB of sports is kind of how I look at it. That's always been something uh, in the back of my mind. I mean, Wikipedia is way off in its own class. I consider that you know, almost the height of human achievement in its own. And and so we focus on, on our niche and, and try to do everything we can uh, for that. And I, you know, you mentioned public utility, but I very much see the site in that way as well. And and so, you know, if the, uh, if the site doesn't update, uh, you know, we're scurrying around trying to, if something breaks, we're scurrying around as fast as we can because we know there are thousands of people who are uh, looking for stuff on the site and need it uh, to get done what they, they want to do. So... I'm fascinated by the nitty gritty here. How much of what we see on one of your sites, Baseball Reference or or the basketball one or or any of them, is automated and how much of it involves folks um, that work for you actually Mm -hmm. manually updating stuff? So I would say 99% of what you see is uh, is automated from day to day. Now, obviously, um, I mean, one of the challenges is with a site as big as ours, with hundreds of different types of pages, with hundreds of scripts leading into each, uh, to the building of each site, you know, you 
run the risk of trying to improve something actually breaking something. So there's um, so there's we have a lot of redundancy, a lot of testing that tries to go on, but still things break. So generally everything's automated, but you know ideally no one's having to work on Saturday or Sunday. But there are some data sets that are a little hard to automate, like contracts and transactions and things like that. So we, we do have people manually entering those generally day in, day out. And the site started out um, with pages for players and teams, right? Um, I imagine there are mm-hmm. league pages as well, leaderboards. And it is just mm-hmm. – these sites have just grown – to a remarkable degree. Can you just give a sense of what all is contained? Let's just focus on baseball reference in this question. Sure. What, what all is contained on that site? Sure. So, uh, and all the sites are pretty similar to baseball in terms of their scope. So baseball, we have full season stats for every um, season back to 1871, which is when the National Associations started. I should also say there's, we're not, you know, the historical data comes from many different sources. So, you know, kind of the true heroes, I think, in this story are Pete Palmer and Gary Gillette, who produced kind of the historical data, the folks at Retrosheet, who produced all the box score and game log data. Um, so, you know, they certainly deserve a, a huge amount of credit in, in the creation of the site and the background of the site. Um, so for baseball, we have box scores currently back to 1912, I believe. So for every game that was played from 12, 1912 on, we have box scores for that game. Who was pitching, who the batters were, what they went. You know, you mentioned that in your, your intro. We have game logs for all the players, uh, splits for all the players as available, play-by-play for every game back to the 50s. Uh, we also have minor league data back to the 19, you know, early 1900s. It's not 100% complete, but it's, you know, depending on the league, it's pretty complete. Uh, we have Japanese stats, Korean stats, uh, Dutch league stats, Italian league stats, what college they played for, full results of the draft. Pretty much anything relating to baseball, we've tried at one time or another to, uh, you know, to add to the site. So it's, it's um, you know, there are millions and millions of different pages and views that you can, uh, that you can build on the site. I I heard the word tried and my ears pricked up a little bit. Were there things that you tried and failed to get on the site? Um, well, I mean, sometimes there are there are leagues where the history is not as uh, closely defined as what uh, what it is for baseball generally. So um, so it's been hard to uh, you know to acquire. We have our bo- NBA box scores. We're you know filling those in as we go. There we have a couple of researchers who, for fun, uh, we have, we pay them a little bit, but for fun they uh, they go research old newspaper accounts or old scoring accounts of 1950s uh, basketball games and fill those in for us. College basketball is a little hit and miss. College football is a little hit and miss just because different schools are more uh, complete than others. So, you know, there's always, there's always at the edges that you can, that you can kind of chip away and, and, uh, and build up over time. How do you make money? Uh, we're largely an advertising uh, based company. Uh, We do have a subscription feature where you can search for, you know, how many, show me all the times Ty Cobb faced the Yankees, you know, which, which games, you know, on the road, how many, all of his games in Yankee Stadium, or show me the last time uh, Red Sox catcher had three home runs in a game. Um, so we do have tools for professionals or serious amateurs, stat heads, we call them, that some people subscribe to. A lot of the sports writers you know, a lot of the uh, broadcast uh, companies that you know subscribe to those features and use those regularly, uh, but largely ad, ad supported. We, uh, you know, we're fortunate to get a lot of people uh, like like stats and like looking things up, and and so we um, we get a pretty big number of tra- amount of traffic every day. And it was more than a billion page views in 2018. It was. Yeah, that was our best year by quite a wide margin. Things are, you know, trending in the right direction. Uh, so we're, you know, fortunate in that way. And, and hopefully I think, you know, I, I like to think that's because we're doing a good job and people can find what they want here and, and keep coming back. So it's, you know, we're purely built on word of mouth. We've never, other than like the random Facebook ad or, uh, or uh, you know, Twitter ad here or there, we've never probably never spent more than a thousand dollars in marketing in a, you know, over the last 20 years. So what you're referring to, um, the subscription service, is the Play Index, where you can mm-hmm. do very powerful searches for individual games, players, teams. It's it's very cool. Um, my sense, though, reading the Times piece, reading another piece in WTOP that was pretty thorough, is that you could charge more money for the Play Index and that I don't know if that's intentional that you want to keep the price low or – 
back to the kind of public utility question when so much data in sports is becoming privatized. It's um, mm-hmm. the teams are very jealously guarding stuff. Do you feel like you have a kind of obligation to keep stuff as as open as possible for folks who are who are interested in research? I wouldn't say it's entirely altruism, but I, I mean, I certainly do feel, um, you know, a great affinity for our users and, and certainly want to, uh, you know, the people who have supported us. When we first started, it was just people sending us money, uh, like NPR, uh, we'd have appeals on the site and people would, uh, would, would donate money to the site. And, and so certainly, you know, I, I don't see any need to leave those people behind, you know, as, as we grow and expand, uh, you know, we're doing doing fine uh, as we are now. I think also it's just our, you know, our business. We're, um, I, I'm not much for sales. So if you, uh, if you restrict yourself to the 30 major league teams and the 10 biggest broadcasters in the country, you've got 40 clients and you have to go sell hand to hand with those people. So it's, that's not the business I want to be in. I, I like talking with fans. I like, um, you know, building things. And, and so, you know, that's more the, uh, the model that we've stuck to. Um, so it's, you know, I, it, it's more what, what we enjoy doing, I think, than, uh, than necessarily what, uh, what would maximize our, our revenue at every step of the step of the process. And you've got 11 employees and you work out of a church in Philadelphia. Do other people in the church have any idea who you are or what it is that you do? Uh, a, a little bit. So I just, I, I go to this church and have been a member here for about 18 years now. I think we've leased space in this church for about 12 years. So we've grown from like one office to about eight offices and a couple in a suite um, that, that we, that we have the whole fl- third floor now. So uh, it's been a slow, gradual process. I, uh, you know, the people who are sports fans uh, in the church kind of know, know what we do um, and, and are aware of it. I don't think, Part of being an internet business is like it's completely un, it's completely opaque to everybody on the outside whether you're massive or whether you're small or whether you make money or whether you don't make money. So uh, I think you know people kind of fill in the the numbers with what they what they imagine. So I, you know we had had somebody in an NBA front office ask me if we had 50 employees because they couldn't didn't think we could get done what we do with less than uh, less than 50 employees. And then I've had people ask me if I do this full time. So it's, uh, you know, we're at somewhere between a half and 50 employees, I think, in most people's minds. So the next step for you guys or the next big project, according to the Times piece, and again, that piece in WTOP.com is soccer. And the WTOP piece mentioned that at that time, the time the the piece was written, there had been 19,175 major league players and Wikipedia lists more than 22,000 professional soccer teams. So we've got like an order of magnitude difference here in terms of scope. How is that project going? Uh, it's it's going slowly. I, I, I would say we uh, we've been launched for about six or seven months now. I think so. We launched sometime around the the World Cup. Um, and, and that's it's, fbref.com. Fbref.com. Thank you. Uh, and, and so it's it's a big job though. It's um, you know we are covering like I think we have launched twenty five countries at this point. I think we just got Romania out. Yes. <laughs> We're just lo- just looking at the last uh, last 10, 15 years of, of data. We're not, you know, we're not covering, you know, 1952 Liverpool Tottenham matches or anything like that. We're starting starting kind of recent uh, and, you know, building up it's uh, an established, you know, baseball reference had the advantage of essentially being a first mover. So we were there at the very start. And so we had the first, you know, Ty Cobb stats page on, on the web. There are, uh, you know, we're not, uh, there's Kenny Daglish stats already out on the web. So we're not going to, uh, not going to supplant, you know, those sites very easily. So we're, we're growing slowly. I, you know, I told our team, our goal is to be the best football uh, stats site by 2026 is our goal. So when the U.S. Wow. hosts the World Cup, we want to have the best best site out there. So we're taking a very long view with it. But it's a lot of fun. I've, I've started following soccer about seven, eight years ago when I was um, first, you know, first interested in doing the site and really knew nothing. I, I knew nothing beyond, you know, like what you would see on the World Cup every, every, every four years. So I, I've really enjoyed... Um, getting to, to know world football uh, in the way we have. And it's, it's something that I enjoy I, every Saturday. I'm up watching, uh, watching one match or another. It's fun. And it's, we're, I think, going to add something to uh, football fans everywhere. I think you said Tottenham-Liverpool 1952. That was three to one. 
Tottenham won. If, uh, I will thank, thank you. See, so that you just pointed out how much work we've got to do yet. So <laughs> that was a white hard lane, September 15th. If you want to just add that when, right, when we're off right. the phone. Um, so I had you do a little bit of research uh, for me. I was curious what the most popular pages on Baseball Reference were. Uh, what did you find? So on Baseball Reference, it's you know we're largely driven by uh, transactions. Transactions Hall of Fame stuff is our is our big uh, big big mover. So on Baseball Reference, over the last three months, Bryce Harper's gotten about a half million page views. Uh, Manny Machado's not too far behind them, and then you do get into more historical uh, group. Mike Trout's up there. Uh, just people looking, probably admiring his page at random times. And then, you know, Babe Ruth, uh, Barry Bonds, uh, Roger Clemens, you know, historical greats are are up there as well. So everybody's always arguing about who's better than whom. So we, uh, you know, we help hopefully help, uh, help those arguments get made. There are a bunch of Easter eggs across the sites. USA Today collected some of them, noting that if you type technical fouls into basketball reference search bar, Rashid Wallace's page comes up. Do you have any favorites or, or ones that folks should play around with? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. I think that the, that article got most of them. I don't, we've done some fun uh, April Fool stuff over the years uh, as well. We try, we try not to, uh, we realize we're a very dry uh, in terms of content uh, a site. So we, we try to liven it up every once in a while. We did a, we have headshots of, of most of the players. So we allowed you to put, uh, but Raleigh Fingers mustache on any player one April April first. We uh, we had uh, Andrew Bynum was uh, uh, kicked off the Cavaliers one year for shooting from half court during practices. So we put up a, pra- a practice shot chart for Andrew Bynum uh, one, one one April first. And I think this past year we announced our pivot to video, and uh, you can find Mike Trout's uh, stats page in video format uh, on our uh, on our site. Are you familiar with Zelmo Beatty? Uh, not, not personally, no. So Zelmo Beatty is the talisman for this, uh, podcast. We say, remember Zelmo Beatty at the end of each episode. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you a little backstory and I'm going to wind around to a uh, final question. So Zelmo Beatty was, uh, he's now in the hall of fame. He played in the ABA. He was a a legend and Shaquille O'Neal was on uh, David Letterman show and David Letterman was kind of playing this fun game with him, like word association. What do you think of when I say Zelmo Beatty? And Shaq said, I don't know who that is. And uh, we had a guy on the show uh, many years back now named Zaid Abdul Aziz, who was also a player from 60s and 70s, who mentioned being really upset by seeing this, seeing that Shaq, a guy who was uh, a legend in his own right, didn't know about the guy's who paved the way for him. And so that's mm-hmm. why we say remember Zelmo Beatty on the show. So this is a long way around for me um, asking, can we do a Zelmo Beatty Easter egg on mm-hmm. basketball okay. reference? Like maybe if you type in RZB or remember, you can get the Zelmo Beatty page up on the site. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here. I, no, I, I will. Uh, I'll take a look at that. I don't know if we'll have that up by the time the, uh, <laughs> the podcast airs, but we'll, uh, we'll we'll see what we can do. We, there's certainly no uh, no no harm in doing that. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. That is the first rule of the sports reference websites: first, do no harm, and then if you, <laughs> if you do no harm, then do do a favor for Josh uh, around Zelma Beatty. Well, as I said at the top of the um, the podcast. These sites really are a public utility. And I just wanted to say how much uh, I appreciate that they exist. And I think I speak for uh, all sports fans when I say that. So thank you, Sean. Well, thank you. I, uh, I Trust me, I feel very lucky that we get to do this every day. So it's, uh, I think that works both ways. So thank you. Sean Foreman is uh, the owner and founder of the Sports Reference family of websites. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
In last month's issue of ESPN, the magazine Tom Juneau writes that his father placed his first bet on the first Super Bowl, Chiefs-Packers 1967. That was also the first football game I ever watched because my Uncle George was married to Vince Lombardi's sister. Who the hell knows why you fall in love, but I can tell you that several love stories began that day between America and the NFL, between my father and gambling, between me and football, and between me and my father. Joining us now to discuss his piece and those love stories is Tom Juneau. He's a senior writer for ESPN, a multi-multi-time nominee at the National Magazine Awards, winning a pair of them for feature writing. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. I'm glad to be here. As you write in your piece, which is headlined The Family Vice, you were eight years old during that first Super Bowl, and you started learning about football that day in order to get closer to your father. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, my father was, um, you know, he was an extremely uh, charismatic man, but also uh, an extremely intimidating one. So I was sort of simultaneously drawn to him and uh, scared to death of him, to be quite honest. So football sort of provided a way in. Yeah, I mean, it does for so many fathers and sons, but this circumstance is a little bit different. You describe yourself as your father's tout that he actually would ask you, a child, to pick winners for him. Well, you know, I think that he was looking for a way in as well. You know, he was an extremely sort of fearsome guy. I mean, he was getting into fistfights in his 70s when he was living in a condo down in Florida. So he was, you know, he was that kind of guy. And he had this kind of sensitive son who just read comic books all the time. And I think he was looking for a way in as well, and football provided it. He was also looking, you know, he became pretty hooked on gambling. So he was also looking for someone to help him win games. So, you know, it served a dual purpose. So you talk about how you um, studied Street and Smith's annuals. You studied pro football weekly. Your father called you a walking encyclopedia. Are your earliest memories of football and of sports kind of inflected with this idea that you were under the gun to learn about this game because of your father? Or were there moments at all where the game was kind of fun and light for you? Um, It was pretty loaded. I mean, I don't remember watching a game that my father was not betting on. And I don't remember my father betting on a game where he did not ask me to help him out, you know, to pick out the winner. So that's how I look at football. I mean, you know, I think in the piece I I write that, you know, all these sort of historic football games like, the you know, the Jets beating the Baltimore Colts, the Dolphins completing their undefeated season, all all of these games are, are all inflected by the fact that my father lost them, and so did I. So based on what you describe, your father not only lost more than he won, it seems like he lost more... Like it almost seemed like he he lost more than can be expected by random chance, or almost like he was picking games or you were picking games intentionally to lose. Like there was so much losing going on. Was it really? I mean, the way that you write it, it seems like every game that he bet on, he lost. Well, he was. I mean, he was famous for losing. I mean, he was so addicted to not just gambling, but like the idea of his own bad luck. That I mean, I know that the the only time that he ever won the lottery was that he and a bunch of friends who were sort of like similarly inclined and had the same sort of relationship with fortune picked a bunch of lottery numbers, and then they played the numbers that they didn't pick, and that was the one that won. So, <laughs> so he was. And so he was, you know, he was obsessed with the idea of his own bad luck. Were you aware of that at the time? And was he self-aware of it? And if so, did you try to somehow tack against it? Would you pick the opposite of what you you thought? Or uh, what was, what's the thought process when you're addicted to it, but you just, everything everything you pick is a loss? You know, gambling is such a strange Vice, because I think that the losing offers an attraction almost equal to the lure of winning. 
you know, I, I think that if you if you really talk to gamblers, the, you know, the losing is is sort of intertwined with the whole experience, and you doubt yourself when you pick games, especially after you've lost a lot. So, I mean, to this day, I will call friends and say, you know, I like the Patriots in the Super Bowl. That means that you should bet the Rams. I mean, there's just a, a thought process to it that's so, frankly, twisted that it just stays with you. The thing that I found so interesting about the story and you know, so much great journalism, it just confounds your expectations. Real life doesn't go how it would be you know, written in, in a book or, or how you would expect. It's that this activity, which brought so much hardship to your father and your family, you write, is also kind of the thing that brought your family together, not just you and your dad, but also your parents. Yeah, I mean, that's why it was called The Family Vice. My dad was uh, a man of, you know, many vices. He, in addition to being a gambler, I mean, he was a hard drinker, and he was a driven philanderer. And so the phone that we had in our household, we lived in a a split level, and we had like, you know, three or four phones, but there was a phone in my parents' room where it had two numbers. And one of the numbers was the family number, the one that was listed in the phone book. And one was this number that, to this day, I don't know, and that my mom didn't know, and nobody knew. And these calls would come in on this phone. And, you know, some of them would be answered behind closed doors because they were my father's girlfriends. And the others that came in on the secret line were the bookies. You know, when the bookies called, you could hear that conversation. That was the conversation that you were sort of allowed to listen to and that you could kind of participate in. Dad, don't pick that one, you know. So it was like a level of secrecy and a level of vice that we all could participate in rather than being excluded from. The other thing that kind of subverted my expectations was that when your father, your family ran out of money, he stopped. Yeah, that was, that was one of the biggest surprises of my life, to be quite honest with you, was when my dad, who made a lot of money in his life, ran out of money completely, and they sold the house in Long Island and moved down to a, a condo in Florida. And you know, my father, after that, not only didn't bet football games, he didn't watch football games because without betting, it was not interesting to him. The thing that he did not stop doing was playing the stock market, and that was um, the thing that took him to his end, which was, you know, to be have no money at all. There's this wink, wink, nudge, nudge around gambling and sports. You describe the, you know, newspapers and whether it's Jimmy the Greek or somebody else on on television picking winners at the same time the NFL is saying publicly that it's not endorsing this activity. Do you blame the sports leagues for that kind of behavior, for encouraging gambling while publicly uh, pretending that that's not what they're doing? Or is blame not the right kind of framework to think about here? I don't think that blame is the right word. I just think that football, the NFL, set out somewhere along the line to become sort of like an all-consuming American activity where it owned the most obvious military-associated all-American dreams plus the shadow side. And so I think that that's what the NFL somehow accomplished. How it did that is beyond the ken of this particular conversation, but it's set out to do that. And, uh, you know, I think that we deal with the aftermath and the consequences of that, not only as sport fans, but as Americans all the time. So your piece winds towards a conclusion about the state of gambling in the U.S. now. Um, The Supreme Court ruling last May um, that a federal ban is unconstitutional. When you think about the future of sports gambling in this country, do you think about how 
legalized gambling would have affected your father's life and your family's life? That's a great question. I mean, I think about the future of sports gambling in this country because, you know, like football in general, I almost can't imagine how it's going to turn out. The idea that the gambling on teams and players is going to bring those teams and players revenue. I mean, it seems just on the one hand, but it seems almost like a, you know, an ethical dilemma that's, you know, almost too naughty to be worked out as to whether it would have changed my father's gambling life. I don't know. I mean, because, you know, it was always so associated with vice. It, you know, it was the secret call that we all kind of wink, wink knew about. And, you know, and I, I wonder if that was part of the attraction to my dad. I mean, that said, when he was living out the years when he was older and didn't have any money, I mean, he went to OTB. Yeah. And he went, you know, and he bought insane numbers of lottery tickets. I mean, he could have carpeted the floor of his home with lottery tickets. So he was addicted to the transaction as much as he was addicted to, you know, the, the secrecy and the romance of it. Yeah, you mentioned OTBs, off-track betting parlors. There's yeah. this kind of a culture and a, a milieu of, of gambling that, for instance, fantasy football, which is in essence gambling, it's more kind of sanitized and right. neutered. You don't get the same kind of characters. You don't maybe get the same rush from it if there's a ticker with the numbers at the bottom of the screen and everybody in the office is is doing it. It just doesn't feel... There's something about maybe the griminess that's attractive as well as the potential risk. But one of the things about uh, that's interesting about off-track betting, about OTB, is that it was legal, but if you've ever been to an OTB betting parlor, it was plenty grimy. Yeah. I mean, it was <laughs> it was like sort of like the same sort of shadowy characters who hung around the track, now hung around OTB, except that they were older and more thoroughly broke. So it was not like a sanitized transaction at all. My dad used to call it going to the club, and he'd spend the afternoon there in the same kind of characters that he encountered at the track, he'd encounter there. So I wanted to end with a question about this reference in the piece to your uncle being married to Vince Lombardi's sister. And you don't get into it in the piece, but that just stuck in my head that on the one hand, you're sitting at home with your dad and you're watching these games and you're completely, it's completely beyond your control what's happening on the screen. And it's sort of on one end of, you're, you're on the consumption end. Then on the other end, you have this connection to this guy who's basically a god in yeah. football, who's kind of pulling the strings and, and running things. Did, was that something that you have thought about and how those kind of two poles worked in your family? I've thought about it, but not as eloquently as you just thought about it for me. So the interesting thing about it is that in my mind, I was connected to, quote unquote, Uncle Vince. I had records of him giving motivational speeches that I actually, you know, listened to you know, well into uh, the rock and roll era. <laughs> and um, you know, when, I first, <laughs> when I first met my wife, I told her that Vince Lombardi was my uncle. And, you know, she has definitely not let me hear the end of that ever. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the, the thing that's funny is that, you know, my parents also grew up in Brooklyn uh, near Sheepshead Bay where the Lombardis grew up. So, my, you know, my parents knew them. My mother was very, very close to um, Aunt Claire. And, you know, my cousin Ellen, with whom I talk fairly frequently, is the legit niece of Vince Lombardi. And my parents have the mask card for his funeral. They attended his funeral. So it's, you know, it was one of, it's one of those things, like, in my mind, the connection was much, much larger than it really was. It was sort of part of the whole, for me, uh, romance of football. Vince Lombardi, the least rock and roll figure, perhaps, in American history. I'm just imagining you kind of rock, <laughs> rocking out to the records in your Yeah, because at the time, you know, when I had those t- you know, things, I was, I was, you know, just starting to kind of, like, you know, listen to 
Dylan and so on. So I'd like, you know, listen to Dylan and, you know, then listen to, you know, winning is, is not everything. It's the only thing. <laughs> the story is called The Family Vice. We'll link to it on our show page. It's great. Um, Tom, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Josh. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now it is time for a solo afterball. And as discussed at the top of the show, this weekend was the NBA All-Star Game. The first ever such event happened in 1951. And it was concocted by then-NBA president Maurice Podoloff, Celtics owner Walter Brown, and NBA publicity director Haskell Cohen. Haskell Cohen, who died in 2000, is a member of the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, the website for which I discovered while doing research for the sentence that I am now reading, now redirects to an online pharmacy. Update uh, your domain names. But moving on, Haskell Cohen was a contributing editor at Parade Magazine, and in addition to inventing the NBA All-Star Game, invented the comic Howard Huge. No, that's not actually true. He did invent the Parade High School All-American teams. So Haskell Cohen, we salute you. And my Haskell Cohen this week is about a basketball player who never made the All-Star Game. Those who are regular listeners might know that I am a taller gentleman and thus have an affinity For the Giants among us, I was curious to learn the identity of the first seven-footer ever to play in the NBA, and I grew even more curious when I came to find out it was a guy I had never heard of. His name is Elmore Morgenthaler. He actually played a total of 31 games for the Providence Steamrollers and the Philadelphia Warriors of the Basketball Association of America in the late 1940s, which is the league that would become the NBA. According to the book Basketball's Most Wanted, the top 10 book of Hoop's Outrageous Dunkers, Incredible Buzzer Beaters, and Other Oddities, Morgan Thaler would play with gum tucked behind his ear, although I've been unable to verify that with any other sources. So take that fact or leave it as you wish. I'm on more solid ground in reporting some facts that I found in an Albuquerque Journal story from 1990. It noted that Morgan Thaler's standout career for the New Mexico School of Mines took place in the 1940s. According to that piece, when World War II broke out, Morgan Thaler was too tall to engage in military service. He went to work as a brakeman for the Santa Fe Railway, and then he was recruited by an enterprising coach to the New Mexico School of Mines. He finished second in the nation in scoring. One of his teammates reported Elmore would stand at one end of the court We'd heave the ball to him, and he'd pop it in easy as crumbs. The president of the school, after that one season, decided he was going to end all intercollegiate sports at the school, which is not a very fitting tribute to our friend Elmore Morgenthaler, who would transfer to Boston College, and then he would go on to play in the Basketball Association of America. But before he left New Mexico, he was involved in a notable basketball experiment. He was on the winning team, the New Mexico School of Mines team, in an 84-61 victory over Drury College in a 1946 game that was played on 12-foot rims rather than the usual 10-foot rims. Morgan Thaler dominated in that game. He made 12 field goals and five free throws. But legendary Kansas coach Fogg Allen, who was a big proponent of the 12-foot rims, declared the experiment a success, even though the tall guy was the big winner on the tall rims. Allen said it showed that the ball rebounds farther back and loosens up play under the baskets. It also proves that the poorest position to shoot is directly under the basket and that the best place to shoot is from 7 to 20 feet out on the court with a premium on two-hand shots. And that is why we today have 12-foot rims and everyone shoots two-hand set shots from the mid-range. But back to our hero. As I mentioned, he only played 31 pro games. In 1996, when he was 74, he was the subject of a story in the Los Angeles Times about how players from before the NBA's golden age had been denied pension money. 
I must say the story was extremely tendentious and poorly argued as it was trying to make the case that Michael Jordan should feel bad about making a lot of money because Morgan Thaler, who had suffered a stroke, uh, was living off of his monthly social security check. Um, That being said, it was a sad story. Morgan Thaler had had the stroke 12 years earlier. He was unable to have control of all of his limbs. He would die a year after the piece came out. But his legacy as the league's first seven-footer is secure. Actually, maybe not. Some sources say he was just under seven feet, while Morgan Thaler himself said in 1990 that he had just measured in at six foot 11 and three quarters, adding, guess I shrunk some. But I'm inclined to give the guy that extra quarter inch first seven-footer. Remember Elmore Morgan Thaler. That is our show for this week. Our producer filling in for Patrick Fort was Dan Bloom. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. If there is, in fact, a Zelmo Beatty Easter egg to report, I will pass it along to you. Uh, And thanks for listening. 